All right. Well, if you're in your Bibles, and we hope you are, to Philippians chapter 4, this morning we continue a series that we started called Let Us Pray. I believe prayer is one of the great privileges of the Christian faith. As Martin Luther said, prayer should be as natural to the believer as breathing is. And yet so many believers in Jesus Christ neglect this aspect of their Christian faith. So we wanted to encourage you. We wanted to equip you to cultivate a healthy prayer life with God. And we are doing so by first when we began in our first session by introducing you to the invitation that God gives us to pray. Then we looked at the template that our Savior Christ gave us to pray alongside of. And then we, last week, we discovered some things from the Word that will hinder a person's prayer life. And now as we start to conclude this series, I want to begin to address that issue of what to do after we have lifted our prayers to God. And the title of my message this morning is, Pray First, Then Wait. Pray First, Then Wait. It has been said often, and I think accurately, that God answers our prayers in one of three ways. He either says, yes, no, or wait. And as 20 years of being a pastor, I will tell you that the most difficult one of those answers has to be the one that is waiting on God. You see, in the valley of waiting, the river of worry often runs deep. Let me say that again. For in the valley of waiting, the river of worry often runs deep. In that moment between the prayers that we have lifted and waiting upon God to give us that answer, often we can be overcome by worry. The Bible translates that word from the Greek into the English word anxiety. I think this is a word that is very familiar to our culture today as worry and anxiety are at epidemic proportions within our culture today. Do you struggle with worry? Do you struggle with anxiety? Now understand the Greek word that we are going to discover this morning that is used for anxiety or the word worry is a word that has a very specific meaning. It means to be pulled in different direction. As hope pulls us in one direction, our fears, worry, and anxiety pull us in the opposite and therefore pulls us apart. The word worry has also has a etymology of from the word strangle. And many who struggle with worry can tell you that there are physical consequences to worrying. And those physical consequences often manifest themselves within a person such as headaches, neck pains, ulcers, even back pains. I got this from the Mayo Clinic. Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our coordination. Even our coordination. So there must be a lot of people worrying driving nowadays, right? What's up with that? Okay, there's these things called lanes, and you're supposed to stay in it, okay? From a spiritual point of view, worry is wrong thinking accompanied by wrong feelings about circumstances, people, and things. Worry is the greatest theft of joy. 
It's not enough for us, however, to tell ourselves to quit worrying because that will never capture that thief. Worry is an inside job and it takes more than good intentions to get victory over it. The antidote to worry is a secure mind surrounded by the peace of God. Now let me go one step further and challenge you and actually in the items that you may worry in. A recent poll taken says the number one thing people worry about here in the United States of America is flying. Flying. But statistics tell us differently. I can understand worrying about flying, being nervous and anxious about flying. For some reason, this huge piece of metal that weighs more than my house is supposed to take me up to 35,000 feet and back down safely as it planes along the air. What happens if the air disappears? You know? But the reality of it is this. That last year, 600 people died from falling out of their bed at night. That's way more than the number of people that died in a plane crash here in the United States of America. In fact, more people have died from a fatal plunge down the stairs, a bite of sausage lodged in their throat, and a tumble down slippery sidewalks. So I've alleviated your fear of flying and now none of you are going to sleep at night. You've gone from one extreme to the other. But we are a nation that are filled with anxiety and worry. And of course there are those personal worries such as our health, about our family, about our future. When people were asked what they worried about the most, it was surprising to me not to hear things like nuclear war or the threat of losing their health. But out of this particular poll, the number one fear that people had is that they didn't look good that day. Nice, huh? You know, I don't care about a nuclear war as long as I look good. (laughs) You know? Sometimes our worries are misplaced, to say the least. It is interesting that sometimes we are even worried about how long we are going to live, yet... Modern medical research has proven that worry actually breaks down your resistance to disease. It actually is a disease in and of itself that affects your nervous system, specifically the digestive organs and heart. The fact that research has now revealed that 79 to 90% of all visits to primary care physicians are stress-related complaints. Charles Mayo, the founder of the famed Mayo Clinic, said that he never knew anyone who died of overwork but he knew many who died of worry. And he went on to say, you can worry yourself to death, but you will never worry yourself to a long life. John Curtis, who's the director of the University of Wisconsin Stress Management Institute, says, I believe that 90% of stress is brought on not by living in the present moment, but by worrying about what has already happened, what is going to happen, or what could happen. So we all know the stress and the anxieties and the worries of life. So how do we rectify that? Well, bringing it into our study on prayer, understanding this, that at times God will ask us to wait upon the answer that He wants to give us. And so that we are not consumed by worry as we wait, and that can be a very difficult thing. Again, that's why I say that the valley of waiting is often runs deep with the river of worry. 
But worry is nothing new to our culture. Worry and anxiety was something that they struggled with back in the day of Christ. In fact, in the great Sermon on the Mount, we discover that in Christ's teaching of prayer in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, there is a section that talks about worry specifically. And that section encourages us to seek God first and His kingdom, and that everything else shall be added on to us. In Matthew 6, 25-34, I want you to listen to these words. You may read along if you like in your Bible, but you'll understand quickly that this is not a new occurrence, and this is not something that is just part of our culture. It's been part of every culture. But the Lord says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow and neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of them all. And then that exhortation. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And in the process of seeking God, that seeking begins in prayer. Why has prayer so often become the last resort. I can't tell you how many people come to me in desperation and worry and anxiety over their circumstances and say, I've exhausted all possibilities, all avenues of hope. I guess all that there is left to do is pray. Prayer is never the last resort. It's always the first choice. Pray first and then wait. Not pray first and then worry. Or worry and then pray last for some. It's imperative that you and I get this straight. I have found that there's a direct correlation with those who walk in contentment and in peace and the health of their prayer life. And when I see someone who's just riddled with anxiety and worry and fear, it often is a direct result of the neglect of their personal prayer lives. God will help you wait. And this morning we're going to discover that promise. He will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding, allowing you to walk in a disposition, a mindset of peace, of contentment, and trust. As a word is used in our text that we're going to have an awful difficult time defining because it can be multifaceted. In the ESV, it's reasonableness. In the New King James, it's graciousness. In the NIV, it is gentleness. And as you look at these different translations, you get the impression that this word is hard to define. 
And that being said, again, God is asking us to walk in this way. Now, one of the things that we are going to discover this morning is that the verses that we are about to read are not suggestions, but they contain within them what is called imperatives. And if you're familiar with the Greek language, you understand that an imperative is a command. God is commanding us in these verses. Let's look at our text together, and we begin in verse 4 of chapter 4. A text that I'm sure all of you are extremely familiar with, but I believe is incredibly important for our conversation this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The book of Philippians is a fantastic book to encourage you to live in a mind state of joy. In fact, the theme of joy is found throughout the book of Philippians. And understand that Paul is writing, encouraging the saints there in the city of Philippi to rediscover their joy in Jesus Christ. Now we have to understand the background before we can truly appreciate these words. First, the individuals that Paul is writing to are going through a very difficult time of persecution, trial, trouble, and tribulation. Many of them have been swept out of their homes. Their wealth has been taken from them. They are left with nothing. They are now exiles, Jews leaving Israel and going into the, uh, the Gentile regions such as Philippi. They have nothing. They are being persecuted there as they are in exile and in refuge themselves. And Paul says, in your circumstances, rejoice. Now, Paul is not on the Mediterranean beach sitting in a lounge chair just kicking it. He himself is in prison, and he doesn't know what his fate is going to be. He could literally be executed tomorrow, and he still says, rejoice. And then we discover he's emphatic by saying it twice here in verse 4. And they are imperatives. It is a command that you rejoice. Now there are great implications in that. Number one, if it's a command from the Bible, and God is asking us to do it, if we don't do it, what is that? Sin. Now did you ever think about that? Check your attitude at the door. We need to get right with God. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. It is a command. But Paul knows that this is not something that can be brought about in the energies of the flesh. It's something supernatural that happens in the believer's life. And this mindset of rejoicing is cultivated and created and conceived by the prayer life of the individual, which we'll see in just a moment. But this rejoicing then plays out in the life of the believer in a, in a character and a conduct of reasonableness. I don't think that's an accurate word. I, I like the ESV in so many ways, but I think this one, it's a difficult word to begin with. 
graciousness, gentleness. When you look at the usage of the word at that time in history, it was the response of one who is being seriously persecuted and responds in kindness. Someone who's being grievously tried and troubled and going through great tribulation and responds to their persecutor in kindness, gentleness, graciousness, reasonableness. Rejoicing even in their troublesome circumstances. There's a lot of implication here. And we must understand this implication if we're truly going to appreciate what Paul is asking us to do here. These implications tell me that if I'm being commanded to rejoice, God only commands me if, number one, that's what he wants me to do, right? And number two, he gives me the ability to do it. That's the difference between Christianity and the religions of the world. The religions of the world will tell you to do something, but then you have to find the ability and the manner in which to do it. In Christianity, God asks us to do something, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to allow us to do what God has asked us to do. What a difference. So not only is God commanding me to rejoice, he's saying that he's going to give me the ability to do so. It also demonstrates to me that this is a choice, right? I'm either going to rejoice no matter what my circumstances are, or I'm not. Now, in a culture like ours today, this is extremely foreign. And I'm sure you can understand why. In a culture that we live in today, we believe that rejoicing, which means happiness... As one wrote about rejoicing, they said it is to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being, to rejoice and to be glad. Today in our culture, we have convinced ourselves that the only way to, to, uh, to obtain and maintain that type of happiness, that type of joy, is through outward motivation. Our circumstances all have to line up according to the way we desire them to line up before joy can be obtained and joy and happiness can be maintained. That's why the founding fathers of our country were so wise to say that they've given us the right of, to pursue our happiness, right? They never say we're going to get there. They don't tell us how to get there, but we can sure pursue it. So many people today are unhappy because they cannot find happiness because they are waiting for all of their circumstances to line up exactly the way they want them to line up before those circumstances, those outward motivators can move them to a position of joy and happiness. And I'm going to tell you, it's never going to happen. People who do that remind me of those people who like to spin plates. Have you ever seen those people? I don't know, do they take an aptitude test? And at the end of the aptitude test, uh, you would be fitted to spin plates. Really? But if you've ever watched these individuals, they're always going, right? they got the poles and the plates spinning on all the poles. That's what I see in the lives of people who are trying to obtain and maintain happiness through their outward circumstances. They're always spinning plates. And do you know how many plates have to break before they finally get it right? And I think they break more plates than they spin plates properly. It's never going to happen. 
God is not looking for us to be motivated by our outward circumstances. God is looking for us to fulfill this command by inward transformation. God is saying, I want you to rejoice so it is such a contrast to everything else around you. It is such a contrast when the people who are persecuting you see love, grace, compassion, kindness, right? You don't think it got people's attention when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross and he asked the Father to forgive them? Or what about Stephen, the first martyr of the book of Acts, when he is, a, when he is being stoned and Paul is watching this stoning taking place and seeing Stephen cry out for forgiveness for his persecutors. Talk about a contrast. Talk about a light in the darkness. That is incredible. If you and I as believers can rejoice even though we are going through difficult trials, troubles, and tribulations, does that get the world's attention? It sure does. Because they can't do it. They can't get there. The problem today that I see with many believers is that they have bought into the philosophy of the world saying that before I can get there, all my plates have to be spinning in the right direction. And it's never going to happen, guys. We're not looking for outward motivation. We're looking for inward transformation. It's a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's a fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives. But it's a command to rejoice I am commanding you, be happy. And how does that come about? Paul will explain. In verse 5, he wants our reasonableness to be known by everybody. He wants Christians to be known for something different, that they don't look like the world, that they are separated from the world, because at the most natural point of reaction, they react contrary. Think of that. The most natural reaction for a person in a troubling circumstance is to fear and to worry. That's a natural reaction. But when the Spirit of God lifts us beyond that, that's a supernatural response. Where we meet that challenge with rejoicing, grace, patience, peace, etc. But he also goes on to say he wants us to be known by these things. He wants the world to know that we are different by our conduct, why the Lord is at hand. Some scholars believe that that was to encourage them that the Lord was with them during their persecuted time. Others believe it's more eschatological, where it's talking about the last days, knowing that the Lord is going to return soon. Either case would have been extremely encouraging for these believers. But if you're going to rejoice, the first thing you have to dispense of is your anxiety. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Again, an imperative. He is saying to us very clearly, do not worry. And this type of worry is very specific. It's the kind that unhinges us, paralyzes us, and incapacitates us. It's harassing care where we care so much that we are being harassed by it. As one wrote, he said, You see what happens with worry is our hopes are pulled in one direction, our fears pull us in another, and we find ourselves focused on the wrong thing in life, completely missing the point of it all. Another one wrote this, The Philippians are not to allow their lives to become so wrapped up with material well-being that they fall apart when their standard of living is threatened 
or their wealth is taken from them. They also need not be anxious about what is going to happen to those around them like Paul himself. Only those who are confident in the coming of the kingdom of God in their vindication by God will not be overwhelmed by the anxieties and the troubles that come in life. So many believers today fall into this pit of worry and anxiety when they see that their standard of living that they have grown so accustomed to that they feel that they need to maintain their happiness is threatened in any way, shape, or form. Think about that for a moment. Are we moving in the direction of stating that we, like the world, will need a standard of living, a quality of life before we can be happy and rejoice? Or shall we submit ourselves to the Word of God and say, no, it is not outward motivation, but inward transformation that I am looking for? This inward transformation begins with prayer, and that's why we are discussing this this morning. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't let anything tear you up inside. Don't let the worry get to you. Don't lose sleep over it. But look what he says. Do not worry, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. This is where it all begins. If you struggle with worry today, I would encourage you to evaluate your prayer life. People who have had healthy prayer lives often can rest in contentment and peace that God gives them through that time of prayer. Now, it isn't just any old type of prayer. Paul is very specific. The word prayer there that is used to lead these three different types of prayer is a word that more aptly could be... uh, rendered adoration. It's a word that we don't use very often in our culture, but an adoration of God. Meaning like we are so engrossed with God that we cannot wait to spend time with Him. Either in prayer or in His Word, but we look forward on a daily basis. And in that adoration, that looking forward to spending time with God on a daily basis, what we end up doing is cultivating a healthy prayer life with God, communing with Him, being in His presence as we get on our knees before Him in a time of prayer. Adoration, meaning He's the number one thing. He's the most important. My day starts with God and ends with God. I have devotions in the morning. I have devotions at night. I like to cap my day that way, giving me the encouragement, the strength I need to start it, and at the end of the day, reflecting on what that day has brought about and so forth, and praying and asking God to see me through another day. Adoration. As one wrote, he said, it begins with adoration, for this is the word that prayer means in verse 6. This love and enjoying of the presence of God, honoring Him in deep, intimate worship of the heart. We must bow before Him in worship and let Him search our hearts and minds. But that moves us to the next point, and that is supplication. This is where we pray for the needs in which we specifically have. But it's praying with earnesty and intensity. And this intensity has often been described by the writers of the New Testament in different words. For example, in Romans 15.30, 
Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive, there it is, together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. True supplication is met with intensity. Ephoratus in in Colossians 4.12, who is one of you, as Paul writes, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. As one stated it this way, this is the way Jesus prayed in the garden and while his closest disciples were sleeping. Jesus was sweating great drops of blood. Supplication is not a matter of carnal energy, but of spiritual intensity. So when you take your needs to God, do so with intensity. Lord, this is what I feel that I need, and then wait on Him and trust Him to answer and to provide that need when He is ready to do so. Again, this is already cultivated in the adoration. To worship God is to put Him in the proper preeminence in a person's life. And then to raise our supplications to Him, raising our needs, knowing already that He is God and that He knows what is best. Remember when we talked about faith last week? Having faith in God in our prayer lives? A lack of faith being one thing that God uh, will hinder our prayer lives with God? And I said there are three things. Number one, do you have faith that God is able to answer your prayers. Yes, I believe God can answer any prayer that I make to Him. Number two, are you convinced that He desires to answer the prayers of His kids? Yes, I am convinced of that. But number three is the one that balances the first two out. Do you believe and have faith that God knows best? This is having faith in the sovereignty of God. That God knows when to answer And he knows when is best and what we truly need. But even before God answers, our adoration, our supplications should then be met with this third type, and that is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an attitude of the heart. It allows us to be thankful for what we have, even in uncomfortable and troublesome circumstances. How often do you find yourself complaining about something Because something's missing, you don't have something, and you completely forget of all the things you do have and all the things you could be thankful for. Aren't we so like that? We could have nine out of the ten things we always wanted, and we'll complain about the one we don't have rather than to be grateful for the nine we do. It's hard to worry and to be anxiety-ridden when you have a heart of thankfulness. We have a beautiful example of this type of prayer in the Bible, and it's found in Daniel chapter 6. You can read it on your own. In fact, I'd like you to do so because it's, it's an incredibly uh, moving passage. Most people know it for it being the time that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, but very few people know why Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. It's because he wouldn't stop praying. Did you know that? Darius, the king of Babylon at that time, who was actually a Mede and Persian of the Medio Persian Empire, signed a decree that for 30 days no one could pray to any other god or any other human except him. But he, Darius, that is, loved Daniel, 
promoted Daniel. Daniel played a large role in what was happening there. But when Darius signed this, it was a trap. It was a trick to get Daniel to capitulate. So what did Daniel do when he heard that no one could pray to anyone but Darius, to any other god or to any other man? What do you think Daniel did? Prayed. What a rebellious guy, right? You know why? The Bible tells us clearly Daniel went and prayed because Daniel always went and prayed. This is what he always did. Three times a day, he always prayed. And it goes on in chapter 6 to tell us the type of prayer. It was a type of prayer and adoration. It was a type of supplication. And it was a type of thanksgiving. And that led him to uh, capture a mindset that gave him peace and contentment knowing that he was about to go and be thrown to the lions. And what's interesting is that Darius, the king, tossed and turned all night because he didn't want Daniel to be devoured by the lions. He didn't get any sleep. But Daniel got a full night's sleep with the lions. And in fact, the Bible says that when Darius went there, he ran there hoping that Daniel would be okay. He opened the door, called down to Daniel, Daniel, are you still there? It's all good. It was great. Down here with my friends. We see this incredible miracle, but the contentment that Daniel brought into the circumstance derived from his prayer life, which we often miss. One commentator wrote this, and I love the way he put it. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. If the Philippians are truly thankful for what God has done for them in Christ, they will not be anxious about the assaults of the opponents who threaten them. A thankful spirit crowds out selfish pride, checks fear, diffuses anger, and directs one's thought outwardly towards others. As Warren Worsby wrote, he stated, Paul counsels us to take everything to God in prayer. Don't worry about anything. But pray about everything. This is his admonishment to us. We are prone to pray about the big things in life and forget to pray about the so-called little things until they grow and become big things. Talking to God about everything that concerns us and Him is the first step towards victory over anxiety and worry. Now let's get to this promise of peace, verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says in verse 4. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious, verse 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In verse 7, this beautiful promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is one of the beautiful promises of the New Testament. That if we will cultivate this type of prayer life, He promises to guard your heart and your minds with a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that God possesses and gives unto you. It's this peace that Jesus talked about in John fourteen twenty seven. He says, Peace I leave you with, my peace I give to you, Not as the world do I give it to you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
As one commentator wrote, it's akin to God's salvation secured in Christ. It will become a garrison standing guard over the hearts and the minds where anxiety and fear lurk. Spurgeon put it this way. When he was asked to describe what is God's peace, he said it is the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. And one commentator wrote, he says, it keeps our minds from becoming hardened, this peace. This peace keeps our eyes from being blinded and us being outwitted by Satan so that every thought remains captive to Christ. It keeps hearts from losing heart so that they do not stray from the pure and sincere devotion to Christ. But notice that this peace surpasses our understanding. The understanding of most in the world would be this, that my peace and my joy and my happiness have to derive from my circumstances. They have to be outwardly motivated. At least that is the course of action that many have taken, if I would not say the majority have taken. But this peace surpasses all understanding. This peace that is a garrison to our minds and to our hearts A garrison, meaning one who stands watch, one who protects, one who stands before and deals with the adversity that comes towards it prior to it getting to us. That's what this peace does. It's unexplainable. It surpasses all understanding of reason. We shouldn't be like this, yet we are. Boy, does that describe the person of Christ on the cross, right? From his perspective, he had it all planned out. The pain that he was going through, he knew would be the vehicle in which the world would experience atonement and redemption. As Stephen bowed down, not knowing what his martyrism was going to result in or the fruit that was going to come about it, he trusted God enough that God did know what was going to happen through his death. And as a young man stood there, watching over the cloaks of the individual stoning Stephen, little did Stephen know, little did those around him know, that this one named Saul, well-educated in the highest levels of learning there in Jerusalem, would become the champion of the New Testament, Paul the Apostle. See, it surpasses my understanding. I don't know why I'm going through this trial, but God does. And all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His person. I'm going to trust Him on that. I don't know why I was diagnosed with this, but God does. And I'm going to glorify him in it because he's going to see me through it. I I don't know why I lost my job, but I'm going to trust that God does. If it was of no fault of my own, it just occurred that I'm going to say trust God is in it and he will show me through it. I don't know why I'm overwhelmed with financial responsibilities all of a sudden of no fault of my own. But I'm going to trust God to provide all that I need. And if we can do that, if we can rejoice always and show that reasonableness, that gentleness, that graciousness to people around us when we are going through severe trials, do you think that's going to get their attention? 
Do you think that's going to be a light shining in the darkness? I say, yes, it is. That is not going to occur unless we cultivate the prayer life that God desires us to cultivate. If you struggle with worry today, I ask you to continue reading this particular section of the Word. Understanding how your thoughts must be brought into the captivity of Christ. As Paul then says, meditate on these things. But verse 9 is one that's often overlooked. And then he goes, do it. That's not only to know these things theoretically or academically, but we must act upon them if we are going to really, truly dissolve worry and anxiety in our life. But it begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. And often the most vulnerable position I have found Christians to be in is when they are earnestly praying and waiting on God. And in that valley they often can be overwhelmed as the river of worry runs deep. But God, if you will keep your eyes upon Him, and through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, being anxious for nothing... He will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding to guard your hearts and your mind and you will be able to rise above that river of worry and be able to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. So pray first and wait.